Will you pray with me, please? Gracious God, I ask that you would illumine these words and meditations with your light for the support and the strengthening of all who are gathered here this morning. Amen. In August of 2011, Chris, a young activist in New York City, had an idea to personalize the needs of a movement that was trying to begin. His idea? Get a bunch of people to submit their pictures with a handwritten sign explaining how these harsh financial times have been affecting them. Have them identify by writing at the end, I am the 99%. Less than a month later, his blog was posting nearly 100 pieces a day. From the 61-year-old who had lost her job and moved in with her kids to a bevy of youths pummeled by student debt and too poor to visit a dentist. Many of the submissions posted were poignant and heartbreaking, but significantly, they were all I statements, and there is something very powerful that happens when people voice their experience. In hearing our own voices and in being heard, we claim our voices, our inherent dignity, and our agency to make change. I remember when I began to see these images across Facebook, across Tumblr, images of ordinary Americans giving testimony to the challenges they were facing that were denying their dignity. Their stories were compelling, but it was the first-person nature of these stories and these statements that moved me so deeply. They were not talking in the abstract or anonymously. These were real people with real needs who were suffering deeply. And their testimonies galvanized persons across the political spectrum and even those who considered themselves apolitical to call those in power into accountability. Their testimonies started much-needed conversations in cafes, in churches, at dinner tables, about social inequality, wealth, consumption, marginalization, and the responsibilities of citizens in a democracy. Testimony is perhaps the most powerful vehicle for creating social change and igniting a movement. The Apostle Paul and the early church knew this, and Paul's testimonies about the power of a life in Jesus Christ and the vision of a world transformed by the action of the church were the fuel that spread the fire of Christianity from the second century until today, allowing us to experience with Paul and the early church their sufferings, their joys, and confessions. Paul's voice and the testimonies of those in the early church gave momentum to this nascent movement and inspired others to join them in this new life in relationship in Jesus Christ. In the sharing and in the receiving, these early Christians and we later-day Christians find a home in each other, the body of Christ on earth, the church. Testimony should be distinguished from testament. Testament is understood more as evidence of some assertion. The Gospels, as they tell the stories of Jesus, are testaments. But testimony is 
the witness of an individual or a group offering their own experience as compelling proof. Testimony is often more powerful than the third-person story of someone else. In the urgency of Paul's numerous I statements, I, Paul, am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I, Paul, appeal to you through love. Paul has swayed generations to life committed to Christ. Today is Reconciling Sunday. It is a day when we lift up the lives of our gay, lesbian, and bisexual brothers and sisters and our siblings of a more nuanced gender and celebrate their, our, presence among us and weep together at the injustice, bias, and discrimination that remains in our church and society. It is a day when we hear testimony. Testimony to the power of the message of Christ that envisions a community where the humanity of each person is honored, where each person's dignity is upheld, where the measure of a relationship is not the gender of the two participants, but the life-giving, ethical, loving quality of that relationship. We hear testimony on the ways that the church has faithfully and courageously lived out Christ's call to such a world and testimony on the ways that we, the church, have fallen short of that vision, causing pain and suffering to God's children. These testimonies remind us of our urgent work to reform the church and transform the world. In this spirit and tradition, I humbly offer you this morning my testimony on this Reconciling Sunday. As many of you may know, my father is a United Methodist minister, and my grandmother was a United Methodist deaconess who would have been a minister in, in her day if, if women could have been ordained at that time. Thank goodness that's one policy we've gotten changed. Church was always a place of solace for me, a source of affirmation and an intergenerational community where I was known and loved. I have felt the strong, abiding, loving presence of God since my earliest memories, and I credit this blessing in part to the people who raised me in the church. For me, church had always been a true home, a place of sanctuary during my parents' divorce and the ups and downs of adolescence and early adulthood. Church was a place where I found respite and where I learned that whatever burden I carried, I could ask Jesus to carry it for me and I would feel a sense of relief and hope. When I graduated from college, after much soul-searching, I discerned a call to ministry myself and entered seminary in Chicago with joy and confidence at having a life direction and a purpose. I was overwhelmed with a feeling of gratitude that studying the Bible and serving in the church was to be my work. I felt a deep closeness to God that gave me courage to speak out on a number of justice issues, issues including the status and role of women and the church's discriminatory stance on homosexuality. Then, Three weeks after entering seminary, I met my partner, Elizabeth, who was also a student there. We fell for each other deeply and quickly, and once again, I was overwhelmed with gratitude 
this time at finding the love of my life. Being with Elizabeth made so many things make sense, all except for one. It didn't match with the church's policies. I learned in short order that not everyone was as happy about this new relationship as I was. Classmates, professors, and even some of my family members made it clear that they couldn't see how I was ever going to be ordained or serve through the church. Over the course of the next year, my overwhelming sense of gratitude turned to depression as I too wondered how God could have called me into ministry and then set me up to be excluded. I felt as if the church which had been my source of purpose, joy, gratitude, and sanctuary, the home of my heart, had rejected me. My final year in seminary, by that time, fortunately, with the help of a few supportive professors, friends, Elizabeth, and a good therapist, I had come to the belief that God wouldn't set me up. If I was truly called to ministry, and I believe that I was and am, if I was truly called to ministry, then God would make a place for me to serve. But God's call is different from the church's call, and I knew the biggest hurdle would be ordination. Our book of discipline in the United Methodist Church, then and now, explicitly prohibits the ordination of self-avowed practicing homosexuals. When I graduated from seminary, I was appointed as an unordained local pastor to a great church in Lawrence, Kansas. God had made a place for me, but I still had a three-year apprenticeship of sorts before I could be ordained. I had a place to serve, but still hadn't faced the ultimate question of whether or not I would be allowed to continue serving. My first church was a wonderful group of people, a community of about 200 on the wrong side of the tracks in Lawrence. Most in the congregation had not gone to college, and in that university town, like this one, being educated was highly valued. I was grateful to be in ministry there, to work to dispel the notion among my congregants that they were second-class citizens in their own town, and together we accomplished quite a lot. But even with my joy in serving, it was painful not to be able to be out. Elizabeth and I lived in a parsonage a block from the church, and a few months after I started, the treasurer of the church told me that Elizabeth needed to start paying rent. I was shocked and wounded and told her that Elizabeth was my family. In her opinion, we were roommates, and Elizabeth was freeloading off the church. Because of my vulnerable position of not being ordained, I did not feel at liberty to push the point, but fortunately, she let it go. A year later, the son of another pastor in the conference whom I had turned down when asked for a date reported to a district superintendent that I was gay. My DS called and asked for a meeting. She told me I needed to be more careful and then said, we never had this conversation. More careful doing what, I thought. Hiding, living, being. Because of these and other experiences, as much as I loved serving that church, Elizabeth and I felt that we no longer wanted to live in an environment that diminished us and made our relationship invisible. When Elizabeth got a job offer in Minnesota, I gave notice 
again trusting that God would make a place for me to serve. I wasn't sure that I could even get another appointment in ministry because I hadn't completed my ordination yet. At the end of that year, after three years of exemplary service in a local church and extremely strong recommendations from those who had worked with me, a seminary degree with a 3.9 GPA and honors, I went before the ordination board, all 35 of them, worried that I would be found unacceptable. In the written materials, each candidate for ordination is asked to declare whether they are in violation of any part of the Book of Discipline, and the paragraph dealing with homosexuality is specifically listed out. In my written response, I had refused to answer that question, stating that I did not accept its validity, being based on an unjust rule, and suggested that all who supported LGBT rights should take a similar position. Standing before the, before the board, I received a battery of questions relating to homosexuality and AIDS, but fortunately no one asked me directly if I was gay. At that time I had decided, if asked directly, I would not deny it. I was excused to wait in the hall, and after an interminable amount of time, a representative emerged to tell me that I had been approved for ordination. After that, Elizabeth and I began to look for a reconciling ministry in which to serve. The CA house position was the first one I applied to. I remember attending worship here at Davis United Methodist Church back in January 1999, when we still worshipped in the Fellowship Hall, and the feeling of inclusion that I received from both this congregation and the search committee at CA House. I felt again that God was making a place for me to serve, this time in a place where Elizabeth and I could thrive as a family. I had found a new home. There is, of course, more to the story, but I'd like to emphasize two things. First, God has indeed continued to make a place where I can use my gifts, graces, and labor to serve others and the church in spite of our denomination's discriminatory policies. My call was not a setup. And I believe now that the despair, betrayal, and isolation that I felt in seminary have made me a better minister and have given me firsthand experience that allows me to connect with others who have been marginalized. And second, I want to emphasize that our denomination's policy has not changed. Though I was able to emerge with ordination in spite of the United Methodist Church's discriminatory policy, I did not do so unscathed, and others have fared much worse, and still others have given up, depriving the church of gifted, talented, creative, brilliant, and often young leadership. We wonder why there are fewer young adults in church, I can tell you as one who works directly with young adults that part of the reason is they are not willing to be part of an organization that treats LGBT um, persons as second-class citizens. And LGBT folks, LGBT folks think twice when considering the United Methodist Church and often opt for the United Church of Christ or the Unitarian or Unity Churches if they have not given up on Christianity altogether. As I began this morning, I shared how the church had been a home to me as a child and a young adult. This local United Methodist Church has also been home to me. 
What can we do to ensure that all United Methodist churches can be home for all persons? The answer, in part, is testimony. We must share our stories of suffering and liberation. When we do this, we give strength and power to the movement that is underfoot to eliminate bias based on sexual orientation and gender identity. We contribute to social change through our testimonies in cafes, at dinner tables, in the public square, and in our churches. In so doing, we draw others into the true spirit of Christianity, that same spirit of grace and transformation that Paul testified to that spread the church across the Greco-Roman Empire in the first and second centuries. Even as the church was the source of much of my suffering, it was also the source of my liberation. Church is where I learned that all of God's creations are beautiful and valuable. Church is where I learned to love all and embrace difference. Church is where I experienced the abiding power of the Holy Spirit. Church is where I have met a Savior who does indeed carry my burdens. Church is where I have become convinced that God's vision for peace and justice, heaven on earth, requires our participation. And church is where I learned that the present church is still filled with human frailty and trying to live up to the vision for Christian community given to us by Jesus Christ. I know you know these things too. Together, we must keep seeking out all who need hope and home and keep speaking our testimony as we transform the church and the world. Amen.